Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Kathy Hochul says the New York State budget will be late this year. The Democrat made the announcement in an interview with the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt one day before the deadline. Hochul says she and the legislature need more time to work out the details of a budget that she hopes will include an affordable housing package and changes to the state's bail reform laws. It's becoming clear that the budget will not be meeting the April 1st deadline, but as I have said all along, it's not about a you know, race to a deadline is about a race to getting the right results. And we are working on getting the right results to deliver for New Yorkers. And so that has been my priority. Hochul says she's working on those results, including reforming the state's bail laws to give judges more discretion when a defendant is accused of a serious crime and winning agreement on a ban of flavored cigarettes, including menthol cigarettes. Democrats who lead the legislature did not include the governor's proposal to eliminate a clause in the bail reform laws that requires judges to use the least restrictive means to ensure that a defendant appears for a future court date. Public opinion polls show that most New Yorkers and the majority of Democrats agree with those changes. Hochul says it's something that they want. Their number one concern is crime, public safety, and there's countless ways to approach that issue. Bail is not the only factor. There's many other things we're doing. Everyone has been aware that this was important to me since I put it in my state of the state address. I put it in my budget. And so we are working together at meeting as recently as yesterday to talk about, you know, how we can get to the right place. Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stork-Cousin says that changes to bail reform are still on the table, but she disagrees with a public narrative that has made bail reform the scapegoat for the state's crime problems. This, unfortunately, is a conversation, for the most part, that is not data-driven. It is a conversation that is driven by uh, a mischaracterization of what the bail laws actually do, and there is no correlation between an increase in crime nationally and our bail um, reforms. Stuart Cousin says the budget is going to be late because Hochul put several unrelated policy issues into the spending plan, including the criminal justice revisions, and they are taking longer to work out. Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie says that and housing policy have stalled talks. Democrats in the legislature have rejected a proposal by Hochul that would allow the state, in some cases, to override local zoning laws in order to get more housing built. Those two issues are taking up most of the oxygen in the room, and I'd say a few days ago it was probably taking up just about all the oxygen in the room. Speaker Hasty says he believes once those two dominoes are settled, agreement on the rest of the budget could come more quickly. Republicans who are in the minority party in both houses have been largely left out of budget talks. Senate GOP leader Robert Ort blames Democrats for the delay, and he says lawmakers missing self-imposed deadlines weakens public confidence in government. 
Ord is in agreement with more of moderate Democrat Hochul's policies than those put forward by more progressive-leaning Democrats in the legislature. He says if the budget is going to be late, then he hopes the governor uses it to her advantage. I would think as this process goes on, does the governor's leverage increase? Maybe. But she's got to be willing to use it. You know, leverage and power, or however you want to phrase it, it only matters if the person who wields it knows how to apply it to get what's best, not for them, but for the people of the state of New York. Governor Hochul asked if she will try to wear the legislature down through delays in order to achieve her agenda, said that's up to them. She could not predict when an agreement might come. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok spoke with Westchester County Executive George Latimer this week. The former state lawmaker shared his thoughts on the governor's housing proposal in this year's state budget. Well, let's break this down into a couple of pieces. First of all, the issue of housing is an issue that affects all of us, all across the state. The governor's plan talks about a 3% increase in total housing units in the downstate region, the MTA region, and then 1% increase all across the state. The goal is an admirable goal. It's a good goal. And to focus on housing is important. We've had a 6% population growth in Westchester County from the 2010 census to the 2020 census, and we've realized the need for additional housing in our home county. Every place is a little bit different, and the politics of each place is a little bit different, but the goal itself is admirable, and that's the first part of the compact. The question in the second part of it is, what's the best way to achieve this goal? And I would add that the important part of this is the affordability of the housing units. You can build market-rate housing in suburbs like Westchester, Nassau, and Suffolk. There will be demand to use them, but you're not getting at the affordability problem, which is what happens for people that aren't Wall Street bankers, top litigators, corporate executives, and so forth. So to the extent that the affordability factor is necessary, then I think we're really focusing on the public policy need. Now, the governor has put out a couple of different sticks. One of them is a mandate for more dense housing around rail stations. And the other one is the ultimate ability to override local zoning for particular projects if it is felt by a board at the state level and housing community renewal that this should be done. And I think that has not received good support. We have seen in our county, in Yonkers, New Rochelle, White Plains, and to some extent in smaller communities like Porchester, Ossining, an embrace of housing, both housing units, market, and affordable, because we recognize there's a problem and local government is... However, we do have a situation where I think if you try to put a hammer and say we're going to override your zoning, we're going to override environmental concerns and other situations, you're probably going to get less cooperation in order to get the units you want. So it's been my point of view on this, that the governor's goal is right, but that the implementation should not have this kind of third rail 
situation. And then I have to add, Alan, since we are in a world of both policy and politics, the folks uh, on the other side of the aisle are adamantly opposed to any loss of local control, and they will make that a November election issue in 23, in which local people are on the ballot. So I'm very concerned that we're on the wrong side of the perception as well as on the content. We can get affordable housing, we can get housing, but we have to use a strategy that will work cooperatively with the communities, not with the threat of uh, overriding their zoning. That's Westchester County Executive George Latimer speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartong. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A new federal authority that creates safety regulations for horse racing recently rolled out a uniform anti-doping program. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard has more. On Monday, March 27th, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority implemented its anti-doping medication and control program. Officials say that for the first time, the industry will operate under a uniform set of guidelines related to anti-doping testing, results management, and penalties. HISA CEO Lisa Lazarus explained the rollout of the ADMC program to reporters this week. It's important to say that HISA only applies to thoroughbred racehorses and to racetracks where the signal is sent out um, through the simulcast, and that's because that's our connection to interstate commerce. So, For every single track that is conducting um, thoroughbred horse races that are being exported, which is what we call covered horse races, all of those will be rolled out simultaneously on Monday. Um, Obviously, not every single uh, racetrack is is racing uh, at this stage of the calendar, this time of year, but every track that is racing thoroughbreds where they're sending out their signal will be, be, the ADMC program will be effective on Monday. HISA was created after the Federal Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act was signed into law in 2020. Lazarus said that when HISA surveyed state racing commissions across the country, they were all over the map with respect to anti-doping practices. She said the new process standardizes every step of the sampling process. The kit is standardized, shipping is standardized, so they have to be shipped out either day of or next day. There were lots of places that were keeping samples five, six, seven days. That's not going to be allowed anymore. Um, And then the manner in which the chain of custody is is, um, kind of followed is also now standardized. Regarding past violations, Lazarus said every trainer under HISA oversight will start with a clean slate. So if you're a trainer that has like three prior violations, you start with zero priors. Now, if you're serving a suspension under a state racing commission decision, you still just serve that out. Like any actual suspensions will still be obviously honored. And even if a sample is taken on March 26th and there's a positive test, um, then, then, you know, the state racing will still have the jurisdiction to prosecute and take that, take that test forward. The New York Racing Association, which operates thoroughbred racing at Aqueduct, Belmont, and Saratoga, is a supporter of the new anti-doping regulations. Patrick McKenna is Naira's vice president for communications. Fundamentally, what HISA does is replace a patchwork of regulatory authorities across 37 individual states with one unified federal body 
in charge of regulating not only racetrack safety standards, but also, importantly, medication control and anti-doping. McKenna said the racing community has been preparing for the new regulations for years. He said the new rules will not affect the fan experience. For folks who frequent Saratoga Racecourse, for example, in the summer, we'll see virtually no change. This is There, there are no changes to the parimutuel wagering system, the way that races um, will be conducted, will look. So that that is something that's important to note. Um, but at the same time, this is a monumental moment for a sport that um, has been in need of modernization when it comes to its regulation. Under mounting scrutiny over racetrack safety and horse deaths in recent years, the patchwork racing industry signed on to HISA's new role with support from members of Congress like New York Democrat Paul Tonko of the Capital Region and Kentucky Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. State University of New York Chancellor John King was recently at SUNY Plattsburgh as part of his system-wide tour of campuses. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley was there and filed this report. Chancellor King, who has been making the rounds at SUNY campuses in his early weeks on the job, stopped at SUNY Plattsburgh's new Nursing Skills Lab, a simulation center to teach students practical skills on high-tech mannequins before they start working at a hospital or healthcare facility. The lab opened in late January, and Nursing Program Department Chair Dr. Patricia Shin explains they have a number of high-fidelity mannequins. We can play through these scenarios of high-risk patients with multiple problems, and the students are challenged to do the critical thinking here instead of in that very intense, intimidating environment of the hospital. There are several suites with different patients, including an adult male and female, a pregnant mom and baby, and pediatric patients. The mannequins can move, cough, blink, and react to medication. A bill has been introduced in the state assembly that would allow simulations to account for 30% of required clinical hours for nursing students. Chancellor King supports the measure and is optimistic about the bill's chance for passage. I co-authored an op-ed with the Chancellor of the City University of New York and the head of the independent colleges and universities in support of the simulation bill. The chair of the Higher Ed Committee, Chair Fahey, has been very, very supportive and very helpful. Uh, the bill moved through committee. Uh, we're very optimistic. It passed the Senate last year, so we're very optimistic that we could see the bill um, hopefully integrated into the enacted budget. Um, but there's tremendous momentum. The, the hospitals throughout the state are very supportive. Uh, the nursing community is very supportive. So we're very optimistic. Joining Chancellor King on the tour of the nursing simulation lab was 115th District Assemblyman D. Billy Jones, a Democrat and co-sponsor of the bill. He turned to Dr. Shin for advice. We want to advocate my colleagues and I for this legislation, obviously, we get pushback. If I had a minute to argue for this legislation, what would you say is the single best argument for this legislation? Would you want the person taking care of your family member to have never been in that situation before and making those decisions for the mm -hmm. first time, be they right decisions or wrong decisions? Mm -hmm. We can give them that critical thinking experience here. The skills aren't the issue, it's more the thinking. 
Shin adds that simulations allow students to make and learn from deadly mistakes. The faculty watching them remotely can watch and then give feedback, and the student can kill the patient in the lab and then repeat it and learn from their mistakes. Whereas in the hospital, we're hesitant to even assign students real high-risk patients because it's dangerous for a novice to be the person in charge taking care of the patient. So we're really excited to have this as experiential learning. So our students will be much better prepared when they do stop into the hospital for their clinicals. King said he's seen a number of nursing simulators at SUNY campuses across the state and believes they are an important tool for nursing programs. I was on a campus a couple weeks ago and they had a, one of the professors acting in the role of a family member. The mannequin was supposed to be her mom who was you know, near end of life. And so she was very distressed and you could see the nursing students trying to figure out how to navigate caring for the patient, being responsive to the family member while getting the right dosing of the medication for the patient. You could see how if that was the first time you were doing it in the real world, that would be very difficult. And the practice of doing it in the simulation lab could make the difference between panicking and being able to do it well. Chancellor King also visited SUNY Plattsburgh's cybersecurity program and then spent time at North Country Community College in Saranac Lake. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Like a lot of tourist towns in upstate New York, the Adirondack community of Old Forge has a housing problem. There aren't enough affordable places to rent or buy, especially for workers at shops and restaurants that serve those tourists. A developer from Utica wants to build an affordable housing complex in Old Forge, but some people are pushing back. The debate is raising questions about who's welcome there. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell explains. If you've ever been to Old Forge, you know why a lot of people love it. There are sparkling blue lakes, mountains on all sides, hundreds of miles of trails to explore. I can leave my house on a day off in the summer and go for a hike or kayak or just camp for the night on a whim. Not many people can do that. That's Sandra Duguay. I meet her at the local Ace Hardware store where she works. Duguay is in her late 30s. Her long hair is pulled back in a pink scrunchie. She's lived in Old Forge for decades and is raising her teenage son here. Duguay wants to buy a home in Old Forge, but the few houses on the market often sell for anywhere from $400,000 into the millions. How does that make you feel as someone who um, has lived here for so long and wants to stay? How does it make you feel that you can't afford to buy here? Oh, it's sad. It's really sad. I love living here. The housing problem in Old Forge is caused by a few different things. First, it's in the Adirondack Park, so there's limited land and strict building codes. 
Second, the number of housing units has dropped by 9% in the last decade. Third, and maybe most crucial, there's a 76% vacancy rate. Most places in Old Forge are vacation homes. They're empty much of the year. Combine all that and you've got a, quote, overwhelming and urgent need for affordable housing. That's according to a recent study commissioned by Herkimer County. I think we're holding on by a thread. That's Tom Greco. He owns the Front Door Diner and Back Door Bar in Old Forge. Greco is also a member of the town board. He says without enough affordable places for local workers to live, Old Forge could lose the industry it's built on, tourism. Once your tourism dies, you know, I I think your town starts to die, and then eventually you lose your school, and then eventually your town just, just falls. The threat of the local school closing isn't imminent, but enrollment has plummeted in recent decades. It's down by a whopping 41%. That's despite the population staying pretty steady. The problem is that folks in Old Forge are getting older, and not enough young people are moving here and staying. A big part of that problem is the lack of affordable housing. That's where Bob Cali comes in. He's the executive director of People First, a housing developer based in Utica. Cali was in Old Forge in late February. He was there to pitch his plan to build 52 new housing units just north of downtown. And so if your economic engine is people and serving the needs of people, you need to be able to promote people to live here on an affordable basis. And that's what Woodlands provides. The Woodlands housing complex would mostly be for low-income folks. Some units, though, would rent at the market rate. Others would be for seniors. Those 52 units would help address the need for more than 300 housing units. That's the gap identified by the county's recent housing study. Despite the data, though, hundreds of folks in Old Forge signed a petition opposing the project. At a town board meeting back in February, people pushed back against two things in particular. The fact that the developer, People First, is from Utica, and the fact that most units would be for low-income folks. Here's local Kate Kaminsky. The indicators from Utica, we have the crime statistic reports and a map of where seven places of People First are located in Utica, New York, which also has Refugee Center, one of the biggest in America, okay? I reached out to Kaminsky multiple times for an interview, but never heard back. The reality is that thousands of refugees have resettled in Utica in recent decades. They're largely people of color from places like Somalia and Myanmar. They've helped revive the Rust Belt town. But folks in Old Forge echoed Kaminsky's comments. They said they were worried about crime, about an influx of low-income people, of, quote, different people moving in. I sat down with town supervisor Bonnie Baker. She defended Old Forge, said it's really a welcoming place, that comments like Kaminsky's don't reflect the community here. The few people that you hear are the few, few and far between those people. Baker has her own reservations about the housing project. She's worried it would overwhelm the town's aging septic system, that the school wouldn't be able to handle an influx of students, And she's not convinced the area needs 52 new housing units. Plus, Baker says the developer hasn't kept town officials in the loop over the last year. At this point, the lack of communication, the lack of trust 
is pretty much gone with three board members. I don't know how to get that back. Ultimately, the town board pulled its support for the project. Still, the developer pressed on. At two informational sessions in late February, Bob Kelly from People First apologized to the packed crowds. I'm human. Made a mistake. I'm sorry for it. Can't do anything more to correct it other than this. Make sure that from this point forward that there is clear communication. But most folks who spoke up at those meetings weren't having it. And there were still concerns about low-income people moving to Old Forge. Here's local Paul Thibo. And you, your apology is not accepted by me because I think you're a wolf in sheep's clothing that's trying to bring government housing into our town that's going to ruin it. All right? Kelly said repeatedly that this was not government housing or voucher housing. He also said multiple times it was not intended to transplant folks from Utica to Old Forge. Ultimately, though, Kelly admitted that the project can't happen without the community's support. You know, at the end of the day, if you don't want this or you don't want us, then I think it's over. Town officials in Old Forge say they do have other ideas for housing, offering tax incentives and loosening zoning laws. But right now, there's no other concrete plan that would pump $20 million and add 52 new homes and apartments into the community. This moment, as Old Forge reckons with its identity and its urgent need for housing, could have a lasting impact on the area, both on who can and who wants to make a home here. I asked Sandra Duguay about this. She's the one who works at the local hardware store and is raising her teenage son here. Ten or 20 years down the line, Duguay says she is still hopeful about Old Forge. I would like it to be a lot like it is now, but a little bit more diverse. People with different ideas and thoughts. and I want all kinds of people to enjoy the nature that I get to enjoy. But without affordable places for those people to live, it's unclear if that kind of future is possible here. That's North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell reporting for the Legislative Gazette. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2313. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.